Hello, and welcome to Exploring Axon, a podcast where we discuss Axon Framework, Axon Server, and their ecosystem. I am your host and a software developer at Axonic, Sarah Tori. In this episode, I spoke with Evelyn Van Keller and Kenny Bashvegler. Evelyn is a sociotechnical specialist who works alongside Kenny in consulting tech companies in finding better ways when designing systems while working smoothly in teams and, when needed, resolving conflicts. We discussed the definition of the vicious cycle of unsustainable software development. We talked about the priorities when designing systems in DDD, RDD, and more. We also talked about how to recognize goals and values in teams, the process of slow and fast thinking, managing priorities, and much more. This was a really great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. And let's have a listen. Good morning, Evelyn and Kenny. How are you today? Thank you so much for joining me. Good morning, and thanks for having us. I mean, I'm really, really looking forward to this. Doing pretty well. So, yeah. Yeah, good morning. I'm really curious uh, about some new insights every time I talk with Evelyn. Yeah, (laughs) that's wonderful. And you you two have been working together for a while, I understand. So um, there's a lot of uh, wonderful knowledge and information amongst the two of you that I am so, so, so looking forward to talk about today. So um, Kenny and I uh, had uh, spoken in uh, a, a few months ago, actually. So uh, that was a really fun talk. But uh, unfortunately, Evelyn, uh, we uh, didn't have the uh, fortune to have you on that recording. But I'm so excited to have you today. And um, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, where you're located at? Yeah, sure. And I, I mean, now you can have Kenny twice. So that's also uh, a win. <laughs> So I'm, uh, I'm located in the Netherlands, the southern part of the Netherlands, which is the best part for anyone who doesn't know that. Um, and at this point, I'm a strategic software delivery consultant, which basically means that I, uh, well, I, I help organizations to balance the whole socio-technical and cognitive uh, aspect of, of, of their very complex environment. So I coach leadership teams um, and, and, and development teams to, to grow towards more autonomous and high-performing uh, uh, teams with a shared sense of reality, which I think is very important. Um, and I'm a little bit weird, probably, um, <laughs> or not that uh, that common in this IT world. Right. Uh, I have a, my, my main background, and the, the thing that I really love the most is my background in social sciences. Right. So I studied cognitive bias, heuristics, uh, psychology, that sort of stuff, and I really, really think that that helps. Yeah. Uh, in the things that I'm doing, because there, are, of course, it's all about technology, but a lot of stuff is going, well, let's call it suboptimal right. um, because of all the social and cognitive aspects. So I think it's a, it's a really, really big plus. And that's also where Kenny and I um, found our common interest, basically, right. because that match and that balance is, is really, really cool. And I think that we really... Yeah, empower each other in, in that sense. Mm-hmm. So that's really cool. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the uh, really interesting things that I find um, talked about more and more in the field of technology these days, which is talking about the human side of things. So we're not just in, talking about, uh, oh, yes, the programming languages and this technology or that technology or uh, you know machine learning and all of that things. We are focusing more on the human aspect of it, which is something that I am uh, personally very, very interested in. And um, as you know, I had a uh, talk with uh, Rebecca Wersprox a, a few weeks ago, and uh, she also has uh, two degrees, one in computer science and another in psychology. And the, the combination of the two is just, it makes so much sense that I don't know why we didn't talk about this 
a long, long time ago, but I'm so glad that we are talking about it now and that we are focusing <laughs> on it. So I appreciate you and everybody else who's making an effort into bringing this sort of more into the foreground of things. Um, so that's really, really a huge plus, I'm sure, for Kenny as well, because he gets to really uh, work with you closely, especially when consulting different companies and uh, talking about some of the things that we talked about last uh, time, like, um, you know, common language or conflicts and things like that. So um, today I would love to talk about some of the things that um, you have a lot of expertise in and you've brought into uh, the, again, at the, the forefront of this conversation, which is one of the things that you mentioned in one of your talks was uh, the, the concept of the, the vicious cycle of unsustainable software development. Can you talk about that a little bit and tell me what, what does that mean? Yeah, that sounds pretty dangerous, right? Um, <laughs> it does, it does. <laughs> yeah, but you have, to, you have to give it a name, it's such a name in order to make an impact, right? So that's also a bit of the psychology aspect there that I need to make a, <laughs> an impact. <laughs> but now I'm tell now I'm giving away my secret, so that's maybe not the best thing to do. But anyway, <laughs> um, no, yeah, the future cycle of unsustainable software development. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I saw happening in a lot of organizations when I. Uh, this was actually at my previous company, um, but in a lot of organizations, there's this thing going on that there is this this fear to touch existing code. And what we then do is we come up with all sorts of workarounds and we start to hack and copy paste stuff. We come up with a lot of, of workarounds and that makes the system grow in size and complexity. And what we then do is we throw in new developers uh, in the mix and we think that that will uh, solve all of our problems. But what happens is they will uh, in turn also have this fear to touch the existing code. So basically this whole cycle is, is, is continuing right. and um, we see this as a solution, throwing more developers at the problem or something as a solution. But basically this whole cycle is a communication problem, right? Because we very often like to jump to the technical side of things, mm -hmm. um, but maybe that's not always the best thing to do because right. there is a an underlying problem here, why we are doing this, why we are in this cycle. And that has a lot to do with the social dynamics and how we are organized in teams. Um, and that's why I really think it's, it's, it's super important to balance out this, these two or three aspects, basically. Right. Uh, and like you said in the beginning, um, it's good that now this social aspect is, is entering the mix more and more. Yeah. I do think we need to be careful that we are not completely going the other way, right. that we are only focusing on the social side of things. Um, <laughs> But that's a risk, but I think I think the, the organization that can balance that and that can break this cycle in, 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 yeah, at a point that they are seeing, okay, we are doing a lot of workarounds or we see our system grow in size and complexity. We, we observe that there is this fear of touching existing code. Right. I mean, those are all really strong signals that there is something going wrong um, underneath, right? That this is not just a technical problem, but there's something going on in the dynamics or the team structure or the organizational structure mm -hmm. that you need to look at because that is how you can solve the problem. So basically one of the things that I said in my talks as well, first solve the problem and then write the code. Yeah. And I think that's a very, very strong, <laughs> good advice that we need to do. But yeah, I mean, Kenny, you've seen this cycle working in, in your organizations and projects as well, right? So the biggest problem I usually see is the thinks that all things are bad. So right. I've done several workshops and then we say, well, this system is seven years old and people immediately say, wow, that's a monolith or that's a monolith. Yeah. Oh, monolith isn't bad, actually. Yeah. It's a good pattern. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not an anti-pattern. Mm -hmm. But they think, oh, legacy is bad. But I 
my first job, I had a legacy that was already there for five years mm-hmm. or maybe 10 years even. And it existed for five more years and was a critical business software right. and it worked. Yeah. And there was no bad thing about it, yeah. but that if we already anchor that, and then we're already going into the biases, right? Uh, exactly, exactly. And we, all, we immediately think it's bad. Right, and that's one of the things that um, when we talk about, especially when it comes to sort of like the DDD uh, side of things or um, yeah. maybe moving into microservices or event sourcing and things like that. And a lot of times um, there are these very sometimes opposing views. Some of the... Um, for instance, developers might think that, oh, you know, it's, as you mentioned, oh, this system is so old and it has to be just uprooted from the beginning and then just start it over again. And you have the other side of the coin where somebody would say, oh, but this is a legacy system and we shouldn't touch it because it's it's been working so far. But how do we kind of make that transition and how do we kind of uh, get over those biases or preconceptions is something that's really difficult I, I find in a lot of teams and we have a lot of conversations sometimes with um, colleagues or um, acquaintances that are co- sort of coming into this field especially uh, the field of domain driven design or responsibility driven design and things like that and um, they have this fear that where do we even begin where do we even start right so um, I'm sure you've seen it a lot of times in your and you're consulting as well. And that's one of the things that uh, I think you talk about when you discuss values and goals and what are those values? What kind of goals we're trying to achieve from that? So if you don't mind yet, kind of talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. And well, that was actually, um, I did some research on uh, social success factors in in agile software development at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically one of the, well, one of the, the, the most important predictor when it came to successful projects and I can <laughs> I can extend a lot about that but I won't um, but one of the, the, the well the best predictor for success was was actually something called value congruence and that that means that all the values um, of the team or the organization uh, are aligned and values mm-hmm. well they come in in all different sorts and, and, and sizes you have personal values and work values um, but in teams where those values those work values aligned, they were uh, better able to um, well to to create successful uh, projects and to um, to accomplish those in a, in a in a better way and that was a very eye opening thing for me because mm-hmm. when I was studying this I was like okay so this is a very very social thing yeah. that is predicting the success of these of these projects so the the, the the alignment in values is basically what leads in the end to that shared sense of reality so that you are on the same page, that you have the same idea about the reality and the environment that you're working on and the problems that you are solving and how you're solving them and the complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, but it all starts with these values. So right. basically what I also do in, in organizations and projects and, and teams that I'm in is try to assess those values. Like, are we aligned in a way? Do we have the same values? Because if, if, if there's something off there and of course not everything has to be perfectly aligned Mm -hmm. but if there are very very big differences then that's a very strong indicator that there will be some struggles along the way as well right so basically the values also impact the goals of course but Mm -hmm. yeah you have to you have to take a look at at these values and it helps that's maybe an interesting side note it helps if the personal values are aligned in a way as well but that just means that you probably like the other person more so that helps always obviously of course um but it, it is worth it to to take a look at these at these values yeah mm-hmm. 
So in a team that, uh, for instance, you have somebody who is um, maybe having different ideas about what this project should be or where it should go or your basic, basic values of where this this um, uh, system should head to. How do you sort of resolve those conflicts? How do you kind of come back to their basic values? And in, in a case that maybe the two colleagues don't like each other, <laughs> what do you do then? Yeah, well, that's a problem. <laughs> Um, well, you don't have to like everyone. <laughs> you don't really have to like everyone that you're working with. Yeah, but of course, when you have those personal yeah. issues, it's harder to yeah, it's harder to kind of uh, come down and resolve those basic values, yeah. right? Absolutely. Yeah. So <laughs> I think it has to do with the way we manage conflicts, right? Usually, we see conflicts as something bad, but I think conflict is the status quo. Evelyn and I have a lot of conflicts. <laughs> She just said uh, Brabant is the best right. part, the southern part of the Netherlands. I don't agree. We have a conflict. Uh, that's, just, that's just a joke. But right. for me, a conflict shouldn't have this bad annotation. Mm -hmm. A conflict, same as failing, should be your opportunity to learn. Because if you have a conflict or a disagreement in an opinion, it's up to you as a person to then think, yes. what is there to learn what I don't know yet? About the other person because we have a conflict for a reason that that's because our mental models aren't aligning so right. that means i don't understand the other person yet or i don't understand mm -hmm. his reasons or there's knowledge to be gained from this other person so if we turn it around and say oh and this is really hard i'm not also yesterday i also had a conflict with my wife again and it's so hard to <laughs> right. just listen at that yeah. time for me at least but so it's it's hard, but changing that around and thinking, okay, I have a conflict and uh, we don't agree on something. Okay, right. what's there for me to learn from the other? Mm -hmm. If we mm -hmm. all get into that mode of trying to understand each other first in a dialogue instead of a discussion where your sole reason is to win. It's so true because, I mean, and, and coming also back to your question about the values, I mean, it starts with these conflicts. I mean, you very often when you... When you come into a team or an organization, you observe or you feel like, okay, something is off here or not. And you, you have an idea of, okay, there is some underlying conflict that's holding us back here. So sure. uh, a lot of, in a lot of cases, the, the first thing that, that I do is just sit in a room together. And now, of course, it's a virtual room, but yeah. just sit together and see if there is still stuff that needs to be resolved or if there are things that haven't right. been said that really need to be said. And uh, that's very uncomfortable in the beginning. I found that very uncomfortable in the beginning as well. As a facilitator, it's less uncomfortable, I can mm -hmm. tell you that. Um, but basically, that's, that is what you need. And it helps if you have an external facilitator that's objective and that can just steer that conversation in a way or just make it a, um, yeah, we like to call it meetings as campfires or conflicts <laughs> as campfires instead of just trying to convince the other party of, of, of you being right and the other person being an idiot. Um, just try to have that open conversation and see if there's something that you can, like Kenny said, that you can learn or is there anything that we still need to resolve before we continue? Because as long as you're in that mode of I'm, I'm doing something right and this other person is, is wrong, then you will never understand the other person's values and, and, and right. everything that comes after that. So basically it is a very important yeah, step absolutely. If you, yeah, if you want to be successful. Right. And yeah. I think it's interesting that you mentioned now that you know, it's a virtual room basically because we're in this situation that we're in right now, a lot of people are working from home and a lot of people are working remotely and have to have these uh, sort of the next level, if you would, communication skills because 
you're not in the room with that person anymore. In a way, it could be good. It could also be bad because if you're having, for instance, if you're having conflict, you can basically turn off your camera or or your microphone and just kind of like you know curse it out or whatever, and then and then come back when you're calmer and have a calmer conversation, right? Whereas when you're in the same room, you kind of don't have that opportunity. You have to manage your um, I don't know conflict, your feelings, your um, your basic values, basically in a different way. So. It's interesting. I think I, I would be interested to come back and have a, have another talk in a, in a couple of years and see how our social um, communication and um, uh, sort of dynamics are changing with with the changing world. So it's yeah. it's interesting it's to come back to it. Different. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So you do mention that um, when communicating with the with colleagues or team members and things like that, and um, kind of coming back to the core values and coming back to something that uh, we can find a common uh, ground for everybody that, you know, people can talk and things like that. But you also mentioned that that we need to revisit and, pub- uh, and polish some of these changes and some of these maybe core values even. How often do you recommend that? It, uh, of course, it depends on the project, on the team or anything like that. But what do you think the, the values of revisiting um, these perhaps conflicts or even resolutions bring into the, to the team. Yeah, that's a, that, that, yeah, well, it depends. <laughs> I'm, I'm of course, I'm in software, everything, everything depends all the time. Yes. <laughs> no, but that, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a fair point. Um, yeah, I, I do. Uh, it, it does happen quite often, but that usually happens after you, really start to have those those honest conversations, let's say, because then it, it allows you to overcome yeah. some of the biases that you're suffering from um, and really uh, start mm-hmm. seeing the other person's perspective and, and gaining more understanding. And then it, it it's easier to, mm-hmm. to talk about those values and to have an, a real conversation about those values because, well, for a, a very simple a very simple example, I was in a, in a project not recently where we uh, started to discuss um, something as simple as a, as a definition of ready. Mm-hmm. And um, those also count as values. I mean, everyone has, a, has different ideas on, on definitions right. of ready. So this conversation uh, was supposed to be a very simple conversation, yeah. <laughs> but it, it wasn't a very simple conversation. Yeah. Um, and it, it turned out that there were a lot of values that were, that were misaligned. And um, so basically those simple things, I mean, values sound very broad and general and maybe complex but it's Mm -hmm. it's in all it's also in these simple things like just a definition of done the working agreements that we have as a team um are they aligned and you notice that this is a very very difficult conversation then that's a signal that there's something not really aligned in a way and that you have a have to have a conversation about that yeah so then i advise you okay let's take a look at these values Mm -hmm. let's Mm -hmm. do it in a way that we are not really um influencing each other uh, up front because that's what we do and that's what our biases uh, uh, do for us mm-hmm. so i do that with a lot of individual contributions so just right. first of all uh, put it on a sticky and mm-hmm. that can be a virtual or a, a physical sticky and um and just start to have a conversation yeah. after those individual contributions and and that really helps yeah and i'm glad that you brought up the the point of sticky notes because some of the things that we talk about when um, modeling a system on when we're talking about uh, beginning a, a new project or maybe transitioning a, a legacy project into something that's a little bit more um, 
in my field, for instance, uh, DDD related or events, you want to source your events or th- something like that. And yeah. then we start talking about, of course, event storming, which uh, Kenny knows a lot about that. And <laughs> please chip in. Um, and I think that also talks a lot about values, because when you put in the um, the result that you want to gain from a system or when you want to change a system, uh, the things that you put down on this on the sticky note, I think those are values as well. And can you please uh, jump in if I'm completely on the on the right wrong track? But that's how I always value it. When you're modeling something, you you're really basically talking about your basic values. You're really bringing yeah. up those um, important things to you, basically. And then once you get everybody's point of view, then you can bring it down and and come up with a system that might work for um, solving a business business problem or solution. There was an interesting discussion last time on a meetup. Mm-hmm. Uh, about event storming where, well, there is an opportunity that people can pitch in, right? Yeah. Especially in the first chaotic phase. It doesn't mean, however, that everyone will do that. And going back to also, when do you change the values? There's another thing that me and Evelyn do Mm -hmm. is watch patterns emerging in the groups. And there's this thing called the resistance line. Mm -hmm. And it it might start, or it can, it usually starts with sarcastic jokes. Not saying sarcastic jokes are bad, Mm And this is what usually always happening in, 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 in groups, right? right. When, when knowledge is suppressed, mm-hmm. so like opinions are suppressed, mm-hmm. we start with some sarcastic jokes. And a sarcastic joke by itself isn't, isn't that isn't harmful, that problematic, yeah. right? But isn't, it isn't harmful. It's a normal way. There's even in anthropology, as far as I know, there's this joking relationships mm-hmm. where like making jokes about your mother-in-law, right? That's, right. Healthy because there's a taboo not being spoken about, right. so it's a ritual actually. Yeah. So it's not really even bad. I'm not saying it's bad, but it, it's a way to look at if there are decision make or is there knowledge suppressed. Mm-hmm. You can watch that group getting into that, and at some point it stopped communication or it's even going on strike. Right. Yeah. You see it now with the whole Corona pandemic. Right. People are going on strike, mm-hmm. and that's the opposite sound, and that's people resisting to the decisions being made. Right. So. That's also happening with values. Sometimes people will say yes, mm-hmm. but actually they think no because it's not safe for them yet, yet to. Absolutely. And, and an event storming might be a, a sort of a pressure cooker for that. Right. So you sometimes really got to be careful with this sure. and watch that system going. So never play on the person itself. Mm-hmm. So never point fingers as a facilitator, at least. Yeah. Don't say, hey, Evelyn, why are you doing this? No, that's unsafe. Right. Uh, do it. Do it on a one-on-one. Right. And if you really want to do that, you want to have one-on-ones because you get so much more information in that one-on-one setting. Yeah. And then do event storming. So make sure it's really, really, really safe in an event storming. And that's the hard part. But it can also teach you a lot. And Evelyn, we've been in that situation, right, where we did event storming and we're like, whoa, what what a social pain (laughs) it is here. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, that's the main reason... That's the main reason why I love event storming sessions. I mean, this is just a perfect mixture of social, technical, cognitive aspects and everything is flying around and everything is interacting with each other. And the pressure cooker thing, I, I like that analogy because that's that's honestly what's happening. And for a lot of, of people that are first uh, coming into such an event storming session, they will think like, whoa, what, what is happening here? What's What's going on? But... This is where all of these three aspects come together and you can gain so much knowledge and observations and signals in these sessions. I mean, you can 
you can mm-hmm. see a lot about the social dynamics, the power structures, uh, decision making, technical decisions. Um, there's just everything going on in these sessions, and that's that's brilliant. That's really brilliant. So now that we, I have to come back to this because this is our world at the moment. So now that everything is virtual, and you do event storming virtually as well, because now we have tools like Miro and you know such that you can basically collaborate with a, a lot of team members at the same time. How do you think those dynamics have changed or are changing? Yeah, they are changing, definitely. But they are changing in, in, in well, it, there's two sides of it, I think. I mean, for me as a facilitator, and I think Kenny has, has that, same, that same thing because we are talking about this, obviously. It's in, in, when you are in a room, um, and especially me, I'm, I'm trained to observe nonverbal communication. I'm trained to do that. And that's really hard when you are in a Zoom session or in a, in a Miro session or whatever, because you really have to look at the, the very small facial expressions or an eyebrow that's being raised or just to, like these sorts of stuff. And that's way easier when you're in a physical, uh, in a physical space yes. together. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's harder to do that. And it, it's, well, you need to pay more attention basically, but on the other hand, mm-hmm. because you are in a in a Zoom session, at least what I'm observing is it seems that people are now paying more attention to what they're saying and how they're saying it. And there's also some mm-hmm. messages in, in the tone of voice and that sort of stuff. So you're just looking at, at different stuff, yeah. at different signals, which 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 works. Um, but I still prefer doing it in a in a physical room because it's still it's better. But I think that the outcomes and the results that we are getting in these event storming sessions that we do remote are are still good and valuable and and yeah it's always interesting because i wonder if um it uh, of course that's also another case of it depends right but i wonder sometimes if somebody who's now put behind a screen versus you know physically close to one another i feel that for some individuals this is becoming a little bit easier to say what's on their mind and sort of uh, get rid of that invisible protective walls that they might have in front of them when they're in in front of somebody else physically. Um, And for some others, it might be very um, restrictive because you don't have that personal connection to, to feed off of each other's body language and facial expressions and things like that. So it's, um, it's interesting. So I, yeah, I always wonder how that's changing the, the again, the dynamic. I, I use this word a lot today, but really is the, how is it changing in the dynamics of the team or when you're trying to start a new project or something like that? So, so yeah, there's this great, yeah, there's this great book by Jay Allen and Kristen mm-hmm. called the remote facilitator handbook. They've been already doing this for over three years, even longer, I think. Yeah. And it's a really awesome yeah, yeah. handbook. And um, what we try to do during these sessions is really make sure people understand the tool. Because if they don't understand mm-hmm. Miro, then you're practically locking them out from sharing their knowledge. Right? Yes, exactly. So always we we well even in physical settings we always start with a check-in where we just use the basic functionality and say, well, mm-hmm. what's on your mm-hmm. mind, and try to let everyone at least speak. But that's also important. Yeah. Even just say your name. That's all for me. But yeah. everyone should be able to get the opportunity to speak. And it's so that's important. Good. That's one of the questions. That's one of the things. That it's so important that people are able to contribute. Because if that's already mm-hmm. not possible and people have problems with their Miro, and we've had this in 
in in several locations, then it's then you already lost yeah. them, and that's already valuable right. knowledge. And and, and 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 the second thing I would like to add there um, is we always do some sense making. So it's like mm-hmm. this is what I got from Rebecca and, and Ken Power in their workshop. Just have some yeah. questions, anonymous questions, where people can just fill something in, and it's just to sense how right. the group is doing. And, and these can mm-hmm. be a sort of like a way to look at how people are feeling about them, right? And that's right. really the sense making. How is the group actually doing now? You need to do that a lot more than in a physical way, because in a physical way we can feel right. and we can we can observe more. And now we just need to do that with tools and just see. And it's not perfect, but it's already helpful than not doing it at all. So small sense-making questions. So do you find that um, in your sessions, the notion of uh, making sarcastic jokes at the beginning of a session, for instance, do you see that still happening when you do this virtually? Is it getting less? Is it getting more? How how is it for you? Yeah, really. For me as well, I don't don't really sense a a difference there in a... No, I mean... When you're in a physical space, there's also this this first phase going on of of just feeling the room and seeing, mm-hmm. Emma, do mm-hmm. I feel safe here or do I do I like it or not? And how are the, the facilitators in the room? And that's also happening in a, in in the virtual session. So personally, yeah. I don't really feel a difference in in that. No. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay, that's uh, just I was wondering. <laughs> so. Um, sort of shifting gears a little bit, um, you do talk a lot about also the ways that we think and learn. So can we talk about that a little bit? Because you mentioned the notion of thinking fast versus thinking slowly and, you know, um, about the uh, different uh, models or about different ways of coming into sort of uh, that uh, con- conclusion making or uh, decision making, if you would. So like the, the obvious complex or complicated and chaotic ways that we, we go about. So, yeah, I'd love yeah. to hear more about that. Yeah, well, sure. Well, this is this is also uh, what I really, really like. And I see all these, uh, I mean, system one and mm-hmm. system two, thinking fast, thinking slow, really has a lot to do with cognitive bias. And, and this is where I got really triggered in my, uh, uh, during my, uh, my study. And um, yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is basically what I, uh, what really, yeah. It, it, this is really what, what what drives me also in in the work that I do now. I mean, this is happening a lot and it's impacting everything mm-hmm. that we do. So basically, in in short, thinking fast mm-hmm. and slow, uh, we have a system one and we have a system two in our brain. This is based. This is by the way not my idea. This is from Daniel Kahneman, which is a, a brilliant guy, and everyone should read the book. Um, but we have a, a system one, which is uh, for thinking fast, and we use that a lot of basically ninety percent of the time. We're using this system. And right. it's basically our, our automatic pilot. I mean, this is the reason that we don't have to think about every single little decision that we are making in a day. I mean, um, if I would ask you like, hey, uh, how did you get here uh, this morning, for example? You, you would have to think about every decision mm-hmm. that you have to make. So how did you step out of your bed? How did you make your coffee? Uh, how did you make your breakfast? How did you open the door? All these sorts of things is what your system one does for you because it's, it's mm-hmm. based on on impulses, on your instinct, it's intuitive and it's fast. And it's really learning from your past experiences. So everything that you have done and that mm-hmm. you have repeatedly done is just saving it in a way. Um, and it helps you make these these decisions fast, fa- very fast and uh, in a very effective way most of the time. Yeah. Um, and that means that you have some time mm-hmm. left to spend with your system two. And your system two is really for thinking 
slow, so very thoughtful and deliberate and rational. Right. Um, and in some cases, you really, really need that, obviously. Um, and uh, system one mm. basically relies a lot on, on these cognitive biases. Um, and mm-hmm. you need your system two to overcome these, these cognitive biases in a way. So, for example, what we also do in, 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 our, in, in our workshop we talk about uh, functional fixedness, for example. Well, that's a, that's a cognitive bias and that really mm-hmm. stops us from thinking about things in, in new ways because we are stuck in what we know because we have done it uh, a lot of times right. in a certain way um, and we are stuck in the way that we, that we know that. So, for example, our fake domain in the trainings that we do has to do with the cinema um, and we, we ask people to come up mm-hmm. with solutions for the whole COVID uh, uh, problem. Well, and basically we think about the cinema right. as being, uh, as it consists of, of rows and chairs and it's this, this fixed thing that we, that we have to deal with. Um, and that's functional fixedness. So right. in order to overcome that, you deliberately have to activate your system too, in a way, to think outside of the box. So what if we would remove all the chairs? What if we would uh, work with, with mm. floor? What if we would completely change the whole thing? So to overcome that functional fixedness, this cognitive bias... You really need to address that system too, and that's and that's happening a lot. I mean, if you are looking at the general decision making in any team or organization, there's a lot of cognitive bias going on, and it really helps if you are at least aware of that, and if you have someone or if you are that person who can recognize that and and act upon it. Because, well, like I said, in, in most cases, you can perfectly rely on your system one and all these cognitive biases, but in some cases, it is right. very helpful to use your system two. Yeah, so uh, I was triggered last week by a discussion about uh, also using several tools to discover, right? Like event storming, event modeling, example mapping, and some say, well, just right. use maybe this one and we put several frames on it. And I'm more on the side of, and I'm not saying the one is bad or the other, but mm-hmm. I'm more on the side of you need to use many of these tools together because in combination, because if you have event storming, that by itself is already the anchoring effect that we also talk about. Because I'm anchoring people to think in a timeline, while example mapping doesn't do that. So even even using one tool, be aware that you're already anchoring, you're your guiding your solution already in a certain way, thinking that it's a timeline. So I, I was just thinking and had this, well, rather epiphany this week, that that is by itself already a bias. So Right. Yeah. Every tool that we're just using. Just using a tool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I... Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of event storming, of course, but I usually switch tools quite fast or yeah. not fast, but at some point just to see, okay, how does this go? And interesting is what 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 Evelyn just said. A good guiding heuristic, and this one is comes from Rebecca, is mm-hmm. model it wrong. Yeah. And what would you do if what won't you do? How right. wouldn't you want to implement this? What's the Absolutely. worst that we have? We actually done that ourselves. Yeah, and actually out of that idea comes a new idea, which I was actually feasible in this case. So that was really interesting. I was like, no, I wouldn't do it like this. Hmm, but actually... Maybe I should. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was interesting. Just just to see that there, that bias, like, really inframed in my uh, thinking. And it could also be that... And um, it's fun. And it, absolutely. Yeah, it's fun. And I think um, changing tools or using various tools is absolutely um, important because, um, as you mentioned, one tool can be used for a certain purpose. And you can, uh, even though you're anchoring yourself, 
using other tools helps you to um, look at it, look at it from various points of views, or maybe change that bias along the way. It's it's very interesting. The one of the tools that I came across um, even before I started really digging into event storming was event modeling. And so for event modeling, you don't have really mm-hmm. a timeline. You can really take your time and uh, t- think about things. Of course, you have to go through that event storming process of it first to figure out what events you actually want to get out of the system. So that that's interesting. But then you have more time to really um, go and make it a little bit more um, uh, detailed, if you would. Right. And changing between the patterns uh, or between the models um, or between these even anchors or biases, I think, in my opinion, is really helpful or in my my case has been helpful because it gets you to really look at it from a different view or an opposing view, even as you mentioned, Kenny. What if it doesn't work? Right. That's so important. Yeah, usually, yeah. and we talk about this as well, Evelyn and, and, and I, it's the, the, there's two Dutch anthropologists that call that Hari. So it's the person with the odd view. And usually, again, there's a conflict. It's like, no, blame it on the person with the odd view. <laughs> and, and, but what's there to learn again? Uh, because that person is seeing it from a whole different view. And yeah. maybe we should first listen to that uh, mm-hmm. yeah. instead of judging. And what you mentioned, I think it is yeah, also and- true because um, in other aspects of life as well, because it, a lot of times when you um, experiment with things or when you do something or maybe even, um, uh, I don't know, starting a new job or starting a new uh, application or something like that. If it doesn't work out, a lot of times we go back and say, oh, I designed this application entirely wrong or I designed the system completely wrong and now I have to go back and start over. But we forget how important it is to gain the knowledge of, fantastic, it didn't work. I want to know why it didn't work, one. And also, it gives you an opportunity to know what you don't want in the end. Because we always know what we want, but oftentimes we don't know or we forget what, what it is that we don't want. So we focus so much on, yes, I want to get this out of this application or I want to get you know this out of this system. I want my system to do X, Y, and Z. But we don't necessarily think about what I don't want my system to do. So a lot of times, as we talked about failure a little bit ago, um, failure is really important because it kind of gives you another perspective of, oh, okay, this is how I got here. Maybe I need to change my pattern. Maybe I need to, you know, uh, change the heuristics. I don't know. Maybe it is something that um, I just completely overlooked in the process. So I think it's it's all very very interesting. Which brings me to the next portion, which I, I know you love talking about, Evelyn and and Kenny as well, which is the heuristics and how do we make good good decision, quote unquote, good decision, right? Because I, I think, in my opinion, good is um, also one of those terms that it it just depends. <laughs> And also based on your time or your, you know, perspective of things at that time. So let's talk a little bit about that. No, but that that's very context dependent. Obviously, I mean, making good decisions. Yeah, that's 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 hard. Um, right. But, it, but it's also I mean, decision making. There's so much that that impacts that. I mean, especially in a group. Yeah, the, the word dynamics is, is has come up a lot. But the social dynamics and. For example, the ranking that's impacting yeah. who's talking and who makes a decision and who stays quiet. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot going on there. So um, based on, on a lot of uh, um, 
yeah, cognitive biases that, that are at play, you, you have to find a way to, yeah, to include at least some, some new insights and create new insights. Right. And, um, so there are, there are basically when you, when you want to make a, well, that's my goal, my, my personal goal in a lot of situations is to make the, um, the least biased decision that I can make. Um, because I know that that biases in, in a lot of cases are influencing how I think and how I decide stuff. Yes. So what I do for myself and in organizations, okay, how can we make the least biased decisions? Which means, which means mm-hmm. that we have to include and create some new insights there as well. And, and like Kenny said, that the Hari, the, right. the weird person um, in a room, we have to listen to that person because this will this this will give us new insights and we have to, we have to include that. So it might be a minority insight, okay. but we, and especially if you are a facilitator, you have to make sure that the minority insights are included as well. Um, mm-hmm. Model things wrong. We have to, uh, a thing that I tell myself a lot of the times is that I have to drop my anchor or make sure that any anchor is dropped very consciously because if, once you, you drop something, once you mention something, everyone in the room or in the group or in the team organization will adjust his or her view, mm-hmm. opinion, perspective based on the anchor that I just dropped. Right. If I say, well, this will take us two weeks, that's an anchor, right? And no one will say, well, I think it will take us two years because we don't do that anymore. So you have to be really, really aware of that anchor there. And um, I always tell myself that, um, <laughs> but it's harder in your own personal life, obviously. But yeah, that's one thing that you can do. You mentioned the word comfortable when we make decisions. And I really like that because it, it makes absolute perfect sense. You make your decisions based on your comfort level. Yeah, but it's it's hard, right? I mean, it's especially if your decision impacts others as well, then it's really hard to be comfortable with that decision. But at the same time, you can only be really comfortable at a decision if you also looked at the other alternative at, at alternatives and other views. And um basically what, what I've what I've done quite a few times is because there's also this risk of, of overconfidence, right? When you think um, that you have a good idea and you will just go all in because you have to have you have to make it work in your own head. So you just go all in. And you are very comfortable at that point. But what helps to check if you're really, really comfortable, so if you're not just relying on your expert intuition, but if you are really relying on your expertise, you uh, you can ask other people to try to make you feel yeah. uncomfortable. And if you are still comfortable at right. the end of that, that session, you can only do that with people you trust, by the way. If you if you are still comfortable at the end of that session, then you know that it's, a, that it's, a, it's not a the decision is not that mm-hmm. biased and that it might be a yeah, a pretty decent solution or decision. Yeah. So so a second thing I, w- I would like to add is optionality. And this is something I also learned from Rebecca, but also from Liz Keong and then uh, an example would be when my wife and me previously would uh, live together, she rented out her house so that she always has the option to go back. So if decisions, and this is what Rebecca says, you have two kinds of decisions, mm-hmm. right? Decisions that are revertible and decisions right. that are not revertible. Mm-hmm. If a decision is revertible, I'll just do it and I'll experiment. And, 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 and don't go all in, what, mm-hmm. what Evelyn just said, because that will just generate sunk cost fallacy and then there's no way mm-hmm. back, right? The only mm-hmm. thing you could say is like, no, 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 that was a good decision. Well, it's not. So again, the ability to fail. But if it's, right. it's not revertible, then we need to maybe think about it and try to postpone as much as possible that decision. So how can we build in that optionality that we're still 
able to switch easily is something not working and something we always say mm -hmm. well within Dome and Dune Design. Right. Just create several models for solving mm -hmm. the problem mm -hmm. and maybe right. just try to prototype them all. Yeah. Let's see how it feels. Mm -hmm. Are you comfortable with this one or not? It does both works, but which one are you more comfortable with? That's a bit of the social part. And and right. one thing I would like to add is if you do make that decision, make it explicit with the team and get buy-in from the entire thing. And we use something called Lewis right. Deep Democracy there. That means that there needs to be a majority for that vote. And if you reach a majority of the vote, uh, ask <laughs> right. the other people in the group, what does mm -hmm. it take for you to go along with this decision and try to add that to that decision? Doesn't mean we're changing the decision, but we're adding things to the decision. There's a, there's a difference there. There's a difference between what we in the Netherlands are so well in bouldering, meaning compromising. <laughs> We're good at that. that. That's actually a name. We call it bouldering in the Netherlands. It's compromising. Right. What, that, what that brings you is that everyone gets nothing. <laughs> everyone needs right. to compromise. Right. Nobody gets what they want. It's, it's a either or. Mm. But what you want was take one decision and see, can we add right. something to it? So we're going left. We're not going right. We're going left. What do you need? Well, maybe I need what I need for me if we're going left is, well, maybe I need a break every 15 minutes. Okay. How does the resting? Is, is that okay for you as well? Yeah. Yeah. Let's mm -hmm. do a break. And that's so important. And usually, and, and we totally understand that people sometimes need to make a decision right. for the team, but at least ask, what do you need in order to go along with to this make this decision? People are fine yeah. With decision. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's what usually is forgotten. Right. We're making a decision yeah. together. There's a majority. There's always the Hari who doesn't mm -hmm. agree. Well, that's just right. the case. We need to make this decision. We need to go yeah. somewhere. And we need to go all in, maybe. Well, not all in, but we need <laughs> right. to go there. What doesn't require you to get along? Because if you don't ask that question, that person will go into the resistance. Exactly. Sarcastic joke, stopped communication or going into details to slow down that process of building. And I can tell you, you will never make the, those deadlines yeah. that way. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really important to, to note that because um, I remember 15 years ago when I was working at a company, um, a lot of the times you have, uh, as you mentioned, the rankings are very important. And I'm Happy to see that in a lot of the companies, those rankings are getting a little bit more in the gray zone, whereas it was so black and white in the past. Um, now I do understand a lot of times, still a lot in a lot of industries, you do have that black and white that it is just what it is. But what I like that I'm seeing more and more um, uh, cases of, especially in the field of technology and software development, is that the the voice is giving to an entire team. So you have these um, really wonderful meetings. You have these communications. You have a lot of tools that you can use to um, not necessarily make everybody happy because it's really, really difficult to make everybody happy. It's impossible. Um, but at least to make things more manageable for people and bring people together to basically reach that common goal and solve that business problem that we're trying to solve. And I think... Um, what you both talked about today and what uh, you do on a daily basis is extremely crucial in my opinion, because yes, we all love to learn about more technologies and more, uh, you know, 
uh, this new thing that just came out yesterday in like whatever field of you know software or technology you're looking at, and we are all so interested in nerding out on those, myself included. But I think a lot of what we uh, sometimes miss is again the communication skills or the tools that we need to find a common ground. So I'm really really excited that you both do this and. I'm excited that you you bring your knowledge and your expertise into our talks and tell me more about it. And uh, I, I really appreciate your your time and efforts. I really, really love that. So just to conclude, um, is there anything that uh, you'd like to add that I forgot to to ask or mention? I, I got one thing. You, remind, <laughs> you, you just reminded me of one thing uh, when I wanted yeah. to talk earlier, and it's really quickly. What usually yeah, happens sure. because you're talking about nerding over new technology, and I, I like <laughs> that as well. And usually, also the phrase "overengineering" happens. Yeah, that usually yeah, yeah. happens because we're not letting developers, software teams, engage with the user or customer, or having a shared language. Because there's already yes. a lot of problems solving user problems, but mm-hmm, if they're being mm-hmm. denied from it, and I think uh, that's my understanding, Kat Swettel talks about epistemic injustice or something. Mm -hmm. Meaning if you don't let the software developers get access to your customer or the users making that, then then they never will know what they need to build. So where Mm -hmm. do they find their their thrill? In new technology, in over-engineering, in microservices, for instance, not saying microservices bad, but they tend to go to microservices because they don't fully understand the problem that the customers are facing. Yeah, they're yeah. being denied that by company cultures. And I yes, think we sh- should focus on that more, focus on how good a team, and I'm not saying it's bad to focus on technology, but there needs to be yeah. a balance also on the social aspect. Who are we building this for? And, and that's something you should remind me. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that's one of the aspects that I really love about working on open source product because you really, really, truly get that um, feedback, which is super important. So um, a lot of the uh, uh, communication that we have with the community and uh, things that we try to figure out, okay, so how can we, um, in our case, for instance, Axon Framework and Axon Server, the the uh, standard edition that's uh, available on open source, how can we make this better and how can we improve it? And a lot of times we do have a lot of wonderful ideas and a lot of uh, things that we want to add or to improve this uh, system, but sometimes we may not think of a certain thing. So when the client uh, or uh, somebody who's using it for their personal um, pleasure or what have you, and comes up and uh, creates an issue and we're like, oh, look at this wonderful thing that we can create now, or look at this extension we can be build- building. And so uh, I'm so, so happy that you mentioned that. So that's one of the thrills I get from uh, open source. I-, I love that. But if the product is not open source, then you're a- absolutely right. You- there has to be that sort of communication uh, and understanding what the customer is trying to to get out of this project and how can you help it. And so involving the engineers in that. And sometimes um, us engineers don't really like to be involved. So <laughs> it's like, I don't want to be in sales meetings or, you know, yeah. uh, customer meetings. <laughs> but it is important at some level to, to, under, to have that understanding and to have that communication yeah. and um, build that relationship with yeah. the system and the end user. So absolutely. And, yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that. And that's the whole essence of domain-driven design, understanding yeah. <laughs> uh, what the problem or the questions or the purpose of your customer is. That's that's Absolutely. it. That's the whole that's core it. purpose. 
<laughs> That's it. You're just trying to solve that problem. So we started with a circle and we are ending with a circle. Wow. <laughs> nice. <laughs> this is what I call a really good talk. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, I'll take it as a good thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. definitely. Oh, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much both for uh, joining me today. I really, really love talking to you both. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to have more conversations in the future and sort of delving in a, a little bit deeper into some of these topics that we talked about today. I appreciate your time. I hope you enjoy your uh, beautiful weather. I understand it's uh, nice and warm now there after it's spring. Many oh. weeks of really, really cold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> spring is happening here in Hamburg too. So it's, it's, it's good times. Yeah. We went from ice skating a week ago to being in a t-shirt in the garden. In just one yes, minute. same here. <laughs> My kids couldn't believe how fast the snow melted. It was crazy. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. But yeah. yeah. well, thanks for, for having us. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. I hope you have a great day and uh, talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to my talk with Evelyn and Kenny. I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Please join me next time as I discover more interesting topics surrounding DDD and Axon. Until then, have a great time and happy coding. Bye.